You're listening to the ACOG District 2 podcast series on the front line, managing OUD in pregnancy. The views expressed by the speakers and moderators do not necessarily reflect those of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Please note our disclaimer in its entirety on our website at www.acogny.org. I'm your host, Heather Friends. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Neil Seligman, who will discuss a bit about addiction and pain management for pregnant patients with opioid use disorder. Dr. Neil Seligman is an associate professor at the University of Rochester, working in the Division of Maternal-Fetal Medicine. He completed his medical degree at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and residency and fellowship training at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He has been employed at the University of Rochester since graduating from the fellowship. Dr. Seligman's interest in opioid use disorder in pregnant women started with research he conducted on the association of methadone dose and neonatal abstinence syndrome at the start of his fellowship. Since then, he has maintained a strong interest in the topic. Welcome, Dr. Seligman. Thank you, Heather. What is the general approach to OUD in pregnancy? So pregnant patients with opioid use disorder should be offered MAT, which stands for medication-assisted treatment with methadone or buprenorphine. For patients already treated with methadone or buprenorphine prior to pregnancy, the recommendation by ACOG and SAMHSA is continuation of MAT during the pregnancy. Dr. Seligman, you mentioned methadone and buprenorphine. Can you describe the differences between these and perhaps some of the pros and cons of each? Well, uh, methadone is a synthetic, long-acting opioid agonist, and it has to be dispensed at a federally licensed substance abuse treatment program. On the other hand, buprenorphine is a partial agonist at the mu opioid receptor and a kappa receptor antagonist. Buprenorphine has a ceiling effect that limits the potential for severe side effects, the most serious of which would be sedation or respiratory depression. And unlike methadone, buprenorphine can be prescribed in the office by any provider with an X waiver. Other advantages of buprenorphine include fewer medication interactions, and buprenorphine doesn't cause QTC prolongation. For the infant, the risk and severity of neonatal absence syndrome is lower among infants born to patients treated with buprenorphine. But despite all these benefits, several studies have noted lower rates of opioid use and greater treatment retention with methadone. As this is the primary objective of treatment, buprenorphine may not be ideal for all patients. You mentioned the continuation of MAT. During pregnancy, there are reports of concerns about withdrawal. Can you explain the differences between tapering, detox, and medically supervised withdrawal, and talk a bit about what is considered safe during pregnancy? Oh, thanks for the question, Heather. This is a complex issue and and an issue that raises a lot of confusion for a lot of people. One issue is separating whether we're talking about withdrawal symptoms or a process of lowering the medication dose. And the terms we use for that latter concept are tapering, detox, and medically supervised withdrawal, which all kind of apply to the process of getting the patient off the illicit opioid, transitioning them onto medication-assisted treatment, and then gradually decreasing that dose at a rate that avoids the opioid withdrawal symptoms until they're off drugs altogether. There are a lot of concerns about the safety of medically-assisted withdrawal that seem to stem really from two cases that were reported in the 1970s. But when you look at the more recent data, a study of over 1,100 patients who underwent detox showed no evidence of fetal demise. 
So it's potentially safe, but I think there are other things you have to consider. For instance, medically supervised withdrawal is not going to avoid all cases of neonatal abstinence syndrome. And return to opioid use is very common, ranging from 41 to 96%. The concern about resuming illicit opioid use is that it can lead to unintentional overdose and death due to changes in tolerance. And while medically supervised withdrawal may not be as risky for the fetus as we once thought it was, maintenance is still going to be the preferred approach for most patients. Dr. Seligman, how do you adapt pain management techniques to pregnant patients with OUD? Or in other words, are different approaches or strategies needed? Well, there's really very little difference in pain management between pregnant patients with OUD compared to those without. Most of the therapies should be expected to work similarly. All the non-pharmacologic options apply. Neuraxial anesthesia, which includes spinal anesthesia and epidural anesthesia, is the best pharmacologic option for patients with OUD that want pain relief during labor and avoids the use of opioids, which may cause neonatal depression if given close to the time of delivery. So then, how do you assess a patient's pain level, particularly during labor? So all hospitals use a validated pain scale to document a patient's pain level, which we commonly refer to as the patient's pain score. You've probably heard of pain scores on a scale of 1 to 10, how much pain are you having? But this is a subjective measurement, and the pain assessment also should take into consideration objective findings, like does the patient appear comfortable, and is the pain reproducible? Access to pain management is considered a fundamental human right, but focusing only on pain intensity can result in under or over treatment, and it may not necessarily improve our pain treatment. Newer approaches that are becoming increasingly common combine a patient's subjective pain score and assessment of the ways that pain interferes with function. These are becoming increasingly common for managing chronic pain, but are not widely used on labor and delivery units. What intrapartum and or postpartum non-pharmacologic therapies do you recommend? Well, as I mentioned before, all the typical non-pharmacologic options that are available to pregnant patients without OUD are also available to pregnant patients with OUD. This would include options like movement. There's no evidence that having a patient move around during labor is harmful, and in fact, it may actually reduce the duration of their labor and the need for neuraxial anesthesia and even the odds of the patient having a cesarean section. We've probably all heard about pattern breathing techniques. Lamaze might ring a bell. This is commonly taught in childbirth education classes. And when it's used with other non-pharmacologic options, may improve the patient's perception of their pain. Another option is having a support person or a doula. That often results in the patient being much more satisfied with the childbirth experience and can reduce the use of pain medications. Other non-pharmacologic options that are available on our birthing unit include use of a birthing ball, massage, or immersion in warm water. Our nurses are able to perform sterile water injections, which are probably not available at all hospitals. Sterile water injections work like TENS, that's transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, and can reduce pain for up to two hours, and there's no limit to how many times sterile water injections can be repeated during labor. Now, when you're talking about postpartum interventions for pain, especially non-pharmacologic interventions, that would be things like heat packs or ice packs and early mobilization, particularly after a patient's had a cesarean section. When a patient's had a perineal laceration, the management is mostly ice packs and sit spas. Nipple pain and pain from breast engorgement should prompt assessment and education about frequent feeding, how the infant's positioned, how the infant's latching, and application of breast milk to heal trauma. For patients not expressing breast milk, I would recommend an ice pack or a tight-fitting bra to reduce discomfort. 
Thank you for talking about non-pharmacologic therapies. Now, what about intrapartum and postpartum pharmacologic therapies? Well, Heather, we had talked about neuraxial anesthesia being the best option for most patients with OUD, but keep in mind that IV fluids are typically given before they can get their epidural, and depending on the patient's drug use history, sometimes getting an IV can be quite challenging. At our hospital, we also have the option of inhaled nitrous oxide. Now, some protocols consider opioid use as a contraindication to inhaled nitrous oxide, but in general, the consensus at our center is that in the absence of any evidence of sedation or impaired consciousness, nitrous oxide is reasonable to offer. So moving on to postpartum pain, when it comes to vaginal delivery, most patients are going to get sufficient relief with acetaminophen and ibuprofen, but can still be given an opioid if it's needed. On the other hand, if you have a patient who's had a cesarean section, they can have neuraxial or PCA opioids and IV toradol, but after the first 24 hours when they're tolerating oral medications, we switch to PO acetaminophen and ibuprofen around the clock as a scheduled medication, which tends to minimize the need for opioids but still give them opioids as needed for moderate to severe pain. Now, another trend that I see becoming increasingly more common is the use of enhanced recovery after surgery protocols, or ERAS for short. These are evidence-based protocols that combine different aspects of perioperative care into a single guideline with the goal of improving recovery and often or always include pain management as one of the components. Using an ERAS isn't so common uh, for cesarean section, but I expect this will become more common as time goes on. So then, how does this differ from your approach to patients without OUD? Well, there really isn't a whole lot of difference. Most of the differences we've already touched on include the avoidance of the mixed agonist-antagonist and maximizing the non-pharmacologic and non-opioid pain management options. But it's worth pointing out that patients with OUD can have a lot more pain after cesarean section than patients without OUD. The reasons why these patients have more pain is a bit complex, but chronic use of an opioid actually results in increased sensitivity to painful stimuli, contrary to what you would expect. Another factor is smoking, which is very common in patients with OUD and also appears associated with having increased postoperative pain. Complicating all this, these patients are often very fearful that they're not going to get adequate treatment for their pain. This is in part because getting a predictable response to opioids for postpartum pain is really hard to achieve in the OUD patient, particularly those on buprenorphine. So what I try to do is talk to the patient in the office and provide anticipatory guidance and reassure the patient that we'll work together to get her pain under control, even if we don't get it right immediately. Would you say anesthesia is more involved with pregnant patients with OUD? And how is their role different in managing the patient's pain with OUD? Yes, I think they are more involved and involved earlier. We work very closely with our anesthesiologists when it comes to managing pain in patients with opioid use disorder. The anesthesiologist needs to know information like the type of medication-assisted treatment, other ongoing illicit drug use at the time of delivery, other comorbid medical conditions, which are particularly common if the patient has a history of IV drug use. And all of these things can affect the safety and efficacy of the anesthesia. A lot of this information comes from having the anesthesiologist doing a comprehensive pre-anesthesia assessment, which includes things like the patient's medical history, the current medications that they're using, any past anesthesia history, and the details of the patient's drug use. This will allow the anesthesiologist to be fully aware of the physiologic implications of the patient's opioid use disorder and any potential anesthesia considerations. 
We do this by having anesthesia see the patients early after admission, but depending on the resources of the hospital, this could also be done through prenatal consultation. Another consideration is that for patients having C-section at our hospital, some of our anesthesiologists are able to perform a transverse abdominis plane block, or TAP block for short. And these are uh, local injection of anesthesia in the plane between the transverse abdominis and internal oblique muscles that are usually done under ultrasound guidance in the operating room at the end of the procedure. From time to time, I do find that some patients have particularly refractory pain and I'll end up consulting the uh, anesthesia acute pain service, which is another reason why it's nice to have them on board early in the patient's management. Do you think that stigma plays a role in the management of pain for pregnant women with OUD? And if so, how would you suggest healthcare providers or facilities overcome some of those barriers? Stigma is definitely playing a role in how providers approach pain management for pregnant patients with OUD. OUD and pregnancy has so many myths and misconceptions, and pain management is really no exception. We tend to under-medicate these patients, and the reasons for that are things like thinking that the patient's medication-assisted treatment should be sufficient for their labor analgesia, when in fact we know they're actually having more pain than other patients. Likewise, we are sometimes skeptical that their requests for additional medication are in fact drug-seeking behavior. I think this all starts with understanding that opioid use disorder is a chronic medical condition that is really not dissimilar from any other chronic medical condition like diabetes or chronic hypertension and goes through periods of relapse and remission just like these other conditions. Understanding that, I think, is one of the main keys to reducing stigma. You wouldn't expect a laboring patient with chronic hypertension to get pain relief from labetalol. And similarly, with opioid use disorder and pregnancy, you shouldn't expect that they're going to have pain relief from their medication-assisted treatment. Reducing stigma isn't going to be easy, but the start has to be provider education and establishing structured guidelines. Are pain management strategies different for those being maintained on buprenorphine versus those on methadone during labor and postpartum? No, the principles really are quite similar. You have to keep in mind that opioids need to be given cautiously when a patient's taking methadone because there's a risk of over-sedation, respiratory depression. Methadone also has a lot of potential medication interactions and can cause cardiovascular complications. Thinking about patients taking buprenorphine, these patients are going to respond to full opioid agonists but require much higher doses because of how tightly bound buprenorphine is to the opioid receptor. Some centers have had success minimizing the need for additional opioids in patients taking buprenorphine by increasing the dose of buprenorphine and giving it as a divided, say, every six to eight hour dose. So, for example, if we increased the dose to 24 milligrams and gave it as eight milligrams every eight hours. So, Dr. Seligman, how do you manage acute withdrawal symptoms in both the inpatient and outpatient setting? Well, withdrawal is actually a really big topic, but I think we can highlight a few of the important points. First off, providers need to be trained to recognize the signs and symptoms of opioid withdrawal. Using the clinical opioid withdrawal scale can help standardize that evaluation and provide longitudinal assessment of their symptoms. And when we identify a patient as having withdrawal symptoms, they should be assessed for treatment readiness. This is going to give us two groups of patients. We've got the patients who are having withdrawal symptoms who are already on medication-assisted treatment and patients having withdrawal symptoms who are not yet in treatment. 
For the ones in treatment, I work closely with their outpatient treatment provider. And for the ones who aren't yet in treatment, I counsel them using the SBIRT model and recommend initiation of treatment to those who are interested. Any provider can initiate buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid withdrawal, but within 72 hours, treatment should be taken over by a licensed or waivered provider. And what I would encourage is that each OB unit work with their experts in addiction medicine to develop guidelines for the initiation of methadone or buprenorphine. Another thing I would point out is being careful not to prescribe opioids other than methadone and buprenorphine for withdrawal symptoms, with the possible exception of opioids that a patient's already receiving for a legitimate medical reason. That aren't willing to start MAT, their mild symptoms can usually be treated with antihistamines, alpha agonists, and benzodiazepines. Is it safe for patients with OUD to breastfeed? Yeah, it's actually not only safe, but it's the recommended approach to feeding the infant. Patients on medication-assisted treatment, be it buprenorphine or methadone, should be encouraged to breastfeed as long as there aren't other reasons where breastfeeding would be contraindicated. These would be things like other ongoing illicit drug use or other medications or combination of medications or diagnoses like HIV. Now, methadone and buprenorphine are detected in the breast milk, but the levels in the breast milk are very low and don't appear to really be related to how much medication the the patient is taking. We know that breastfeeding actually reduces the severity of neonatal absence syndrome, but the reasons probably don't have much to do with the amount of methadone or buprenorphine in the milk and probably relate more to providing comfort for the infant or treating the intestinal dysbiosis that seems to cause some of the GI distress that these infants have. And finally, what strategies do you suggest for reducing prescribing patterns, particularly following a C-section? Well, there's a few ways we can do this. First of all, it's managing patient expectations. I, I spend a lot of time talking with patients about the normal course of recovery so that they know what to expect about their pain when they're home. Second, I continue around-the-clock acetaminophen and ibuprofen for about a week after discharge. Another issue comes down to how much medication the patient's going to be given when they're discharged, particularly the size of the opioid prescription. And I think each OB unit really needs to develop a specific protocol for postpartum prescribing and set a limit to the number of pills prescribed. When a patient's calling with a request for a medication refill, those patients should be seen in person and evaluated before receiving another prescription for opioids. It turns out that most patients are satisfied with their pain relief, essentially regardless of the quantity prescribed. But patients who get larger prescriptions, really, those are the ones that are more likely to feel like they were given too much medication and have more medication side effects. In my experience, 20 tablets is going to be sufficient for most patients. But even with 20 tablets, I know that some of my patients are going to have leftover medication, so I discuss the safe handling and disposal of the remaining tablets by either bringing the medication to a designated drop-off location or disposing the medication in a specifically designed package. Patients, I think, are at high risk of misuse, and their partner or support person, I also give them teaching and a prescription for naloxone. Dr. Seligman, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure. Thank you, Heather. Thank you for listening to today's episode. 
For more information and additional podcasts on managing OUD in pregnancy, visit www.acogny.org and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ACOGD2 for updates on OUD and other cutting-edge medical education resources.